Good morning, everybody. You can remain standing for the reading of God's Word, which is from John chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. We'll have it read in English and Spanish this morning. John 3, verse 17 through 21. If you have your Bible, you can follow along your app, or it'll also be on the screen behind us, both in English and Spanish. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Juan capítulo 3, versículos 17 al 21. Porque Dios no envió a su Hijo al mundo para juzgar al mundo, sino para que el mundo sea salvo por él. El que cree en él no es condenado, pero el que no cree ya ha sido condenado, porque no ha creído en el nombre unigénito Dijo de Dios. Y ese es el juicio, que la luz vino al mundo y los hombres amaron más las tinieblas que la luz, pues sus acciones eran malas, porque todo el que hace lo malo odia la luz y no viene a la luz para que sus acciones no sean expuestas. Pero el que practica la verdad viene a la luz para que sus acciones sean manifestadas que han sido hechas en Dios. Amén. Well, today we're going to conclude our look at a conversation in John chapter 3 of, of immense importance. It's between Jesus and a, a powerful, wealthy, religious figure in Jerusalem named Nicodemus. Uh, in it, Jesus outlined, we've, this is what we've done, done the past few weeks, Jesus outlined what was needed to see the kingdom of God, that is to be saved, what is needed to be saved, and he says this to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. And then last week we looked at John, uh, the earlier, John uh, 3.16 and the verses surrounding it, and we said, why? Why is it possible that anybody could be born again from above? And we said that's possible because God so loved the world that he gave his son. And then we also saw last week, we touched on what, was, what must we do to receive eternal life? That is to believe, only believe. Right? If you were here last week, we saw that like Jesus said, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness on the pole, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's picturing his death on the cross there, and he says, so that you would look at me and you believe in me, you trust me for your salvation. And now, as we finish out this conversation, we get a summary of what has been said and a reminder, a reminder of the importance of belief or faith. Now, you may or may not have noticed, if you've been here a while, the, the term that, and what does it really matter what I say, but the term that I use most often to denote a Christian is a believer. And, and I do that on purpose because there's a lot of terms that we can use to describe what a believer or a Christian is. You can say they're a Christian. You can say they're a disciple or disciple of Jesus. You can say they're a follower of Jesus. Uh, or you could say that they're a believer. Now, all those terms are, are good and biblical, but the reason I use believe is because, it, it, because of passages like this. 
Because while those other terms can mean lots of different things, if you say, I'm a, I'm a Christian, well, some people may say, I'm a Christian, because they just simply may agree more with Christianity than they do with any other religion, or they were brought up in church, or around church, or somewhat connected to church. They're like, if, if I had to pick a religion, that's what I would be. It's not the most important thing in my life, but it's a, a part of my life. Or somebody might say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and that, that's a perfectly biblical term to use, but it may mean that somebody's just saying, you know what, I like Jesus, I like his manner of life, I like kind of what he stood for, I like the way he lived his life, I liked his teachings, and I want to kind of model my life after him. I want to kind of follow him. But when we say that you are a believer, what we mean is that you can't be, you cannot be anything connected to Christ. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And the way that you are born again is by believing in Christ. A Christian is someone who is a little Christ who is following Christ. They're a disciple of Christ, but they are, are so because they believe in Jesus. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's what we must do. But even then, even saying we are Christians are at the core of who we are, we are believers, even that can get confusing. What do we mean when we say you believe in Jesus? See, Nicodemus, as he met here with Jesus, he would have considered himself a believing man. He would have considered himself a, a man of faith. But yet Jesus is stressing something with him. What is, what is he stressing? And what does that mean for us? What we're going to see this morning is the stakes the object and the promises that Jesus talked about when he talked about belief and unbelief. The stakes, the object, and the promises of belief and unbelief. First of all, let's look at the stakes of belief or unbelief. In order to really understand this conversation that's going on between Jesus and Nicodemus, you have to understand, first of all, where Nicodemus is coming from. What caused Nicodemus to leave his home in the middle of the night, and he himself being a wealthy teacher of the Scriptures who knows the Scriptures, a Pharisee, what caused him to come to Jesus in the middle of the night and ask him questions? And in order to understand that, you need to understand what, what is the focus of Nicodemus's life? You have to understand what, what would be the biggest questions that Nicodemus would have about life and about God. And the way you understand that is, first of all, by understanding what this passage tells us earlier in the chapter. It says that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. That tells us a lot about him. See, there were two big groups. There was another group, and it wasn't quite as influential. There were two, the most influential groups in Judaism at this time. They were called the Sadducees. And the Pharisees are the two most influential groups in Judaism, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Just stick with me for a minute because this is going to come in play. Here's what the Sadducees believed. They believed in a strict adherence to the Old Testament law. God gave the law in the Old Testament. The, he told us the things to do and not to do. He told the Jews. And the core of that was the Ten Great Commandments, right? And then all kinds of other laws that surrounded that. They believe that you should strictly adhere to the Old Testament law, but here's what set them apart. But yet they didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in the spirit world. 
They didn't believe that spirits were at operation in the world. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that man had a spirit. They didn't believe that when they would die, they would be resurrected again. And they also didn't believe in God's providence in everyday life. What that means is they didn't believe that God was actively involved in everyday life. Most of the wealthy and the powerful Jews belonged to this group. And as such, they were able to maintain their Jewish identity because they said, hey, we got to obey the law. But because they didn't believe that God was involved in daily life, they didn't believe in a resurrection, they could, they could shift to whatever the kind of prevailing culture was around them. And at this time, it was the Greco-Roman culture because the Roman Empire controlled the lands of Judah and Israel. Now, the Pharisees were a very different group. They were even more strict in their obedience to the Old Testament laws. In fact, they had hundreds of regulations in place to make sure that you wouldn't accidentally transgress or break one of God's rules or commands. Take, for example, the Sabbath. God said, the fourth commandment, you shall honor the Sabbath day, you shall keep it holy, you shall do no work, even your, uh, your servants, your livestock, even sojourners, pilgrims in your land, they shall not work on the Sabbath day. You shall keep it holy, set apart for me. And the, so the, but the Pharisees asked, well, he said that we can't work, but what does it mean to work? If I wake up and I clean the kitchen, is, is that work? Or what if we have to eat? What if we, does that mean that we, we cook? What if, can we cook? Is that work? Can I clean up after I cook? If I have to go somewhere, how many steps can I take before it becomes a day of work? What do, what, what do I do? They ask these questions. So what they said is that, they said, all right, we're going to set up these rules. This is how many steps you can take. This is what you can do to cook and not cook. They set up all these extra rules on top of what God said just so they can say we can make sure we don't break this law of God. And they were known for their zealousness in worship and in keeping that law. Now, do you see the difference between the two groups? They were both religious, but one was religious not to the extent that they were inflexible, the Sadducees. They could morph and change with the times. They could figure out how to rise in power and influence in a pagan and sometimes brutal society around them. But the other group, the Pharisees, were passionate about living holy. That means separated. If you read the, the word holy, it means separated lives. They pushed back against money and power. They lived thoughtful, careful lives, and they paid attention to the smallest detail in the everyday life. Now, what made that difference? The difference was that the Pharisees believed that the soul was immortal. They believed that you lived forever. Once you were created, you lived for all eternity. And they believed that God was actually involved in the events of everyday life and that there were rewards and punishment because your soul was immortal that God was active in everyday life, then they believed that there were rewards and punishments in the afterlife. In fact, they believed, and this is the teaching of Scripture, that this life was a preparation for eternity. That's what they believed. This life is not the ultimate thing. This life is a preparation for the eternity to come. In other words, this life isn't the main course, it's the appetizer. 
It's not unimportant. It's incredibly important. But this is not the main course. This is not the turkey and dressing or whatever you have for Thanksgiving. Anybody in here that does ham or something other than turkey for Thanksgiving? Yeah, ham. Yeah, this is not the ham. I wish we were a ham family, but we're not. A, this is not a ham. We deep fry it, so it's pretty close. It, 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 it's not the turkey and dressing or the ham or whatever the main course of your Thanksgiving is. It's the appetizers that come before, before that. That's what this life is. It's not the song. It's only the prelude. And that's how the Bible talks about this life, this earthly life that we're on. It calls us strangers and sojourners or pilgrims in this life. It talks about this life. It says this life is a, a fleeting vapor, like a, a puff of steam, like whenever you open the, the freezer on a hot summer day and that puff comes out and all of a sudden it's gone. That's what scripture describes this life is like. It talks about this current world as fleeting. It talks about a new creation that is to come, one that is lasting. It talks about the, the patriarchs, Abraham and those. It says that they, the early members of Judaism, the early founding fathers, were looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. In other words, they were looking for something more permanent than this life because this life is not permanent. And Scripture talks about this life being fleeting and a vapor. It talks about this life being a preparation for eternity. And Scripture talks about every man and woman having to give an account for their life here. Can you imagine that? We, we should. Scripture paints a picture that we as men and women will give an account for every deed, and not only every deed, but actually every word that we say. And it talks about judgment and punishment resulting from those Rewards for those who pass the judgment and terrible punishment for those who are found as rebels against God and worshipers of vain idols. Now, if you believe that, picture Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the middle of the night. If you believe that, if you really, really believe that this life is not all there is, it's a preparation for eternity, that God is involved in everyday life and we are all going to give an account to him. If you really believe that, then it will affect the way that you live your life. And because of that, Nicodemus should really stand out to us. Because he is powerful and wealthy, yet he's still a Pharisee. And what that means is he's wealthy, but he's not pursuing wealth. He's powerful, but he's not trying to hold on or shore up or increase his power because he believes that there's a resurrection. He believes that God is involved in everyday life, and he believes that he's going to give an account for his decisions, his deeds, and his words to God. And he believes that that will result in either glorious rewards in eternal life or terrible condemnation. So Nicodemus would be a man who's very careful about how he's living his life, and that's very admirable. And plus, he's admirable in that he's coming to Jesus. He's humble enough to come to Jesus to ask him some questions. And he comes in earnestness, not to test him like the other Pharisees, but because he sees signs that Jesus is from God and he wants his help. And here's what he's wondering, I think. He's coming to Jesus because he isn't sure he's okay. He's a Pharisee. He's living life very carefully but he's not sure he's okay. He wants to make sure he's got all his bases covered. You see, what you believe about this life, what you believe about this life 
and the one to come determines how you live your life. Do you believe that this life matters? See, if if you don't believe in God, or you don't believe that your soul is eternal, then this life will matter very little. And you'll treat your life and you'll treat others around you like this life doesn't really matter very much. And we see that in people around us. Some of you here in this room, whether you profess Christ or not, you really believe in your heart of hearts that this life matters very little and you treat your life and you treat the other people around you like it doesn't really matter what you say or what you believe or what you do. If that's true, then here's what I know will happen. The eternity that God has placed in every human soul, and he has placed a taste or a sense of eternity in every human soul, that eternity that he has placed in your soul will haunt you. And you'll try to make this life into more than what it can be. See, your soul desires heaven. You desire eternity. Because of that, that can lead you to live this life with incredible fear and anxiety. It'll lead you to live this life with incredible fear and anxiety because you feel this desire for heaven, you feel this desire for eternity, and you'll try to scratch and claw to create your heaven here. How much of your energy, how much of your attention, how much of your life is spent trying to make heaven here? Trying to claw and hold on to youth even though your body is aging. Because you desire eternity, you desire heaven. But see, if you also, if you believe that in God and that your soul is eternal, like like Nicodemus here, that can still weigh on your soul. Because if you believe that life matters, that this is a prelude for eternity, how do you ever know if you've done enough? How do you ever know if you've done enough for the next life? If you believe that this life is a prelude for the world to come, how can you ever know if you set yourself up for the life to come? Do you ever feel overwhelmed by your own weaknesses and your own shortcomings? I mean cripplingly overwhelmed by your own weaknesses and shortcomings. Wondering, I don't know if I can set myself up for the life to come. You see, neither the path of the Sadducees who believed this world is all there was, nor that of the Pharisees could produce life. Now, the Pharisees were closer to the truth because they believed that there was eternity. They believed that human life is immortal. But the, the Pharisees understood the stakes, but they were placing their faith in the wrong place. And that's what Jesus is getting at with Nicodemus. He says, he, what he's really getting at, he's saying, the object of your faith is in something that cannot deliver eternal life to you, and not an assurance of eternal life. Now, you could say that the Sadducees were focusing on what serving God could do for them in the here and now. What can serving God do for me in the here and now? That's also some questions that some of us ask. How does serving God help me live my life, my best life now? How does serving God help me serve my best life now? How does serving God or having 
following God, how does that help me fulfill who I believe I, I can be? How does it help me fulfill my full potential? And like the Sadducees, it focused on his promises to God and his favorite people, but it, fost- excuse me, it fostered pride because they believed, hey, God really revolves around making my life better. It fostered self-righteousness because they believed that they were right. And it fostered power and control. And you know what that actually did? In the name of obeying the Old Testament rules, it actually produced a distance between them and God. Because they viewed life through that lens. They didn't believe God was active in their everyday life. They didn't believe he had kind of any personal relationship to him. How you view life produces something. Now, the Pharisees, on the other hand, they believed that God was holy, he was involved, and he cared about everything right. Because God was holy, he required perfection, so they worked really hard to be perfect. They were zealous and strict. They, they were very successful at being zealous and strict in their obedience to God. But do you know what that produced? At the end of the day, when they could look back and they said, yes, I can, I can know for certain today that I didn't, I didn't work on the Sabbath day. I can know today that I didn't covet my neighbor's wife. Uh, I can know for certain today I didn't commit adultery. I can know for certain today I didn't steal anything. I know that I gave God a tenth of everything that I, that I acquired. I know that I did that today, but you know what that produced? They turned inward. And it produced... And then as well, a life of pride and self-righteousness. Because they felt they were doing everything that God had told them to do. Or, if they didn't succeed that day, it produced doubt and despair. Have you ever lived in that kind of cycle? Cycling back and forth between pride and self-righteousness? Because you're like, man, I'm living this Christian life the way God has called me. I know I'm doing a good job. Or you mess up a couple times and you're like, you're, doubt, you're full of doubt and despair. A vicious cycle. And you know what that does in you? It produces a distance from God. Because you don't know that you can trust him. You don't know that you can go before him. You don't know that he'll receive you. You don't know if you've done enough. How many days do I need to pray every day? How many days do I need to be, read my Bible? And how many chapters do I need to read so that I cover that porn? So that I cover that evil word that I said about my friend, my mom, my neighbor? How many times do I have to go to church in order to make up for the times that I didn't go to church? See, if you believe that God requires perfection, and by the way, He does. And if you think that you can fulfill it, which, by the way, you can't, then you will be in constant doubt. And it will continually have between your heart and the heart of God a distance. You'll distrust him. And actually, what you'll do is you'll actually hate him. That's what happened to Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the best monk that they had. He worked harder than anybody else. 
He would consistently go back to the confessional booth and confess over and over the smallest, whenever he would see, oh yeah, that, that small sin, he would, he would start confessing the smallest, tiniest sins. And, he, and what has happened so much, he did that so much that he wore out his confessors. They said, please stop coming to us and confessing these things. And he's like, but what do I do with this sense of guilt? And he was so racked by that constant sense of guilt that he said that in his heart, he actually knew I hated that God required perfection of me and I couldn't fulfill it. I hated God and I couldn't confess that because I continued to hate him the more I confessed. I hope you see by now that all of us belong to at least one of these groups. If not, we flip-flop back and forth between the two because that's the natural operating system of our fallen state. See, the biggest issue in life isn't whether being a Christian can help you fulfill yourself, nor is it whether you can be good enough to get to heaven. The issue, and this is what Jesus was getting at with Nicodemus, is where are you personally with the only begotten Son of God, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? This is the heart of what it means to believe. It's not a general belief in general facts. It's not a, even a belief in the general belief in the contents of the Bible, though that is incredibly important. But there are many people who believe in the contents of the Bible. If you ask them, is that true, they will say yes. But it does not change their life. They, they're in the same cycle, either with the Sadducees or the Pharisees, either with the Sadducees or Nicodemus either thinking that God exists for me to fulfill my best life or being in a constant cycle of knowing I need to be better, need to do better, but I can never be better enough. And in my heart, I really despise God and I can't get past that hate for him that is in my heart. The great issue in life that Jesus is getting at is a, do you have a vital personal belief in the one the Bible is about. That's true faith. That alone is saving faith. It's the one thing that separates the condemned from those who have eternal life. Only faith alone. And there's a huge difference in believing about Jesus and believing in Jesus. There's a huge difference between believing about Jesus and believing in Jesus. See, if you believe in somebody, if you believe in somebody, it means that you implicitly trust them personally. If you had a, a big case that you needed adjudicated, you need an attorney. And you might go to Jonathan and say, Jonathan, I'm, I was in this accident, I had this problem. And you, how you interact with Jonathan will determine, will tell him how much you believe and trust in him. If you're calling him every day, checking on him, he's not going to take those calls, by the way. If you call him every day, checking on him, asking him, are you doing this? Have you checked into this? Do you know this? Jonathan has done, how, who knows more about the law and about this case? You or the attorney? Well, hopefully the attorney does. But how you trust him, if you believe in him, 
will come out in the way that you respond to him. Or you might go to him and say, Jonathan, I believe in you implicitly. Here's my case. Go at it. I trust you. I'll do whatever you say. I'll go wherever you say for me to go. I'm yours. I'll follow you because I believe in you implicitly. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. Not generally about him. I might believe about Jonathan. I know he, he has a law degree. He's been in practice a long time. I know he's won some cases. I can know all those things and yet still not believe in him personally, implicitly entrusting myself to him. And that's the difference between believing about Jesus and believing in him. Implicitly and totally entrusting yourself to the person of Jesus because you have ultimate faith in him, putting all your trust in him. And if that's true, then you will give him all the obedience and resources that you possess without question. Does that reflect your faith in Christ? Is that how you trust Jesus? Or do you trust Jesus like you trust some, somebody who's just learning to drive beside you and you're trying to teach him? Why should you trust Jesus? Why should you trust the person of Christ? Not just about him, but entrust yourself to him. Well, first of all, because he's God. He alone is almighty creator God. He alone is God. And Jesus is telling us here, he was given to us by the Father. Why should you entrust yourself to him? Not only is he God who was removed, but he is God who was sent to earth as a human to save us. That's what Jesus is telling us in this passage. And he was given by the Father for that purpose. He came to save us and he came to die. That's what Jesus is telling us in this passage. Nicodemus, unless the Son of Man, me, unless I am lifted up on the cross and die for you, you cannot be saved. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. But if you believe in me, if you just look to me for salvation and help and wholeness, you can be saved. He came to die. Why should you trust him? Because he's God sent from the Father, sent to save, came to die, and he has risen. He alone in the history of humanity is the one who has an empty grave, who has killed for you, died for you, buried for you, and risen for you. And why should you trust him? Because he alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. And your life, your eternal destiny hangs on whether you believe in him or not. That's what Jesus says in this passage. But why do men stand condemned? Look at verse 18 again. Jesus says, whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, the Son of God, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned. Why are they condemned? Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Why do men stand condemned? Is it because of the, the deeds that you have done? 
is because you've done bad things, you've looked at that woman, you went online, you cheated on your taxes, you're a liar, you're a cheat, you're not a good friend, you're not a good son, you're not a good father, you're not a good mother. Is it those reasons? Why did men stand condemned? Because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That is why you and I stand condemned. What is the judgment that condemns us? The judgment that condemns us, verse 19, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because, and here's where we get to the works, because their works were evil. Is it the evil deeds that primarily condemn us? The primary thing that condemns us is that we prefer the darkness over the light. That's, that's John's favorite picture for God compared to the broken world system that we live in. Light versus darkness. And this is what he says. This is why we stand condemned and under judgment. Because humans who are made in the image of God have preferred darkness and their own deeds of darkness rather than God. They have loved that more than their creator. Do you see the evil in that? It's not, just, it's not just that I've done bad things. It's that I have loved darkness rather than light. I preferred to be in control of my own life in darkness rather than obey and submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Does that maybe help you to, to, to rethink why individual sins are such a big deal to God? I've heard the question like, why would... Why would somebody who commits this small sin over here, why would they be under judgment and condemnation of God because they just did this little sin? Couldn't God just blink at that sin? Couldn't he just overlook it? Isn't that what love is, to overlook sin? A little thing like that? Yeah. The problem isn't with those individual deeds that we do. It's because those deeds that we do are the fruit or the product of a twisted love inside us. We love darkness rather than light. Light has come into the world. He's given it in creation where he shows his majesty. Light has come to the world and he's given his written word and it shows us his purity, the way that we should live our life. Well, the ultimate way that light has come into darkness is that he sent the Son of God, the living Word, the living revelation of God, and he showed us his love for God so loved the world that he gave his Son. And yet, and yet, when we prefer the darkness, we reject all of those ways that God has shown us light in creation, in his written word, in showing us the sun. We prefer our own sense of control in the darkness because we love the darkness and not the light. We love our way and not Christ. And for that, there is condemnation and impending judgment on you and upon me. Because if you reject the light, God's majesty and his purity, also his living, breathing, dying love in Christ. If you stay in your condemnation and judgment, you must do so in the face of God's great love for you. That's hard truth. I get it. I feel it. In our current culture, we don't like hard truth. 
We don't want to have to think about hard truth. And we have dozens of ways to distract or numb ourselves so we don't have to face it. What I'm asking this morning is don't do that. Let this truth sit on you. This question, does your life reflect one who has come to love the light rather than the darkness? Do you love Jesus Christ more than anyone and anything else? That's the simplest way I can ask you. Do you love Jesus Christ more than anyone or anyone else? That's what I'm asking. Here's what he says. He says, everyone, this is the promise of belief or unbelief. Everyone is going to have to deal with condemnation and everyone is going to hide. Either the condemnation stands upon your head or upon the head of the one who is lifted up on the cross. And you will hide either in the darkness away from God or you will hide yourself in Christ alone. To the one who believes, to the one who lives by the truth, that is the one who believes in and obeys Christ, they don't have to hide. They don't have to live in darkness. They don't have to work in their own power. That's why it says, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The one who believes in Jesus Christ receives eternal life and they experience the power and presence of God in their life to work in them and through them. The one, that's the promise to the believer. But the one who doesn't believe is a dreadful promise. It says here, the Father didn't send the Son in the world to condemn the world. That's good news. He sent him to seek and save the lost. He sent him to be lifted up on the cross. He sent him to die. He wasn't sent to condemn us, but to save us. He isn't the condemner, but he is the judge. He is the king. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead, and he will cause all of us to give an account for all the deeds that we have done and all the words that we have said. And either we will say, I point, we will either point to and say, I'm looking to him who is on the cross on my behalf, look to him for my record, or we will stand under condemn, condemnation already, not because he delights to condemn us, but because we stayed in our darkness, we stayed in condemnation, we stayed in our darkness in, in the face of the light that he showed us in creation and his word and the love of the one who gave himself on the cross. If you believe in him, his death is accounted for you and his life is given to you. Here's the question. Do you believe? Do you with your mind and heart and soul with everything that you have do you believe with every fiber of your being are you reliant alone upon Jesus Christ for him alone nothing else no other hope no other God no other king no sin no good deed nothing that you prefer over him and his work for you or is there a barrier between you and Jesus have you come into the light Have you come into the light? If not, where are you hiding? 
What are you hiding from him? Are you hiding from Jesus? Or are you hiding in him? This is my urge to you this morning. Don't stay under condemnation. If you're a believer, don't stay in broken fellowship. If you're a believer in Christ, why would you pretend to still be a child of darkness whenever he's been brought, he's brought you into the light? What are you letting stand between you and him? What kind of control are you holding on to? Will you come to the light? Will you show that God is at work for you and in you? I'm about to pray and lead us to time of communion. Some of you today, some of you today, you need to move towards the light. Some of you may, you may need to physically and emotionally make a move. You've been hiding in darkness. Either you say, I'm, I'm not a Christian or I'm not sure that I am. Or you say, I'm a Christian, but I'm living like a child of darkness. You've been hiding there. You've let doubt and fear keep you there. You've let your desire for control to hold on to not humble yourself, keep you there. And you know you need to come to the light today. Here's my urging to you. Don't stay in the darkness. If you're a believer in Christ, don't stay in the darkness. If you're not sure if you're a believer or you know that you're not a believer, don't stay in the, the darkness. Don't let the darkness rule you. Maybe you need to make some sort of move this morning. Maybe you need to say, I need to come forward. As we open the, the wings for communion, maybe you say, man, instead of coming to communion this morning, maybe I need to come to this bench this morning and pray. Maybe you say, I need to humble myself and come forward and ask somebody to pray for me. Maybe you say, I've for a while been wrestling whether I'm actually a Christian or not, and I'm not sure. Today is the day that you need to come forward and ask somebody to pray for you today. Don't let pride the love of the darkness or fear keep you. Look to him. Hide yourself in him. And let the condemnation that should rest upon you rest upon him. And receive him today as your Lord and Savior. If you're a believer, return to your first love. Do whatever you have to do this morning to return to your first love. Don't hide anymore. I'm going to pray. There's going to be two stations, one on each side. Come forward as you see fit, as the band comes forward. Receive the bread and the juice. Return to your seat if you're a believer in Christ. And I'll come back and lead us at the end. Father, thank you for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for our forgiveness that can be found in him. Lord, I pray that you would help Stir our hearts and don't let us stay in darkness. There's someone here today who has never moved from darkness to light, Lord. Don't let them leave without coming forward. Bowing themselves before you. 
Lord, if there's a believer today who's caught living like a child of darkness, God, I pray that you would help them to move out and step out. So they could receive fresh assurance of your eternal life. Their heart could be moved with joy again as they return to their first love. In the name of Christ we pray.